You're listening to GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers, now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. GDA Podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today. Want today's guest at your next event? Call GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast with hosts Scale and Kyle Davis. Enjoy. Okay, right, so with us today on GDA Podcast, we have Raj Sisodia. He is a founder and leader in the conscious capitalism movement and a professor at Babson College. Uh, for people who have listened to the podcast in the past, uh, you kind of know uh, when I do this solo, I don't like to do these long, you know, uh, windy uh, introductions. So I'm going to go ahead and have Raj introduce himself. So Raj, take it away. Yeah, so I'm the, as you said, the one of the founders and uh, former chairman of Conscious Capitalism, Inc., this is a, a nonprofit and a movement that we started about 10 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Some CEOs, some thought leaders, and others to change the story of business because we have a very narrow and outdated way of thinking about business that it's only about profits and it's only about shareholders and everything else is a means to that end. We believe that there's a much richer and deeper narrative about business that actually enriches the experience for all stakeholders. So we've come up with the uh, pillars or, or tenets of what we call conscious capitalism that define it in terms of four uh, distinct uh, elements, which we can get into in this talk. Um, I would definitely like to discuss those four pillars, but before we get into that, how is it that you kind of uh, came about to to rethinking um, capitalism from you know what it would be the fundamentals to this new way of thinking of this this conscious capitalism? Yeah, I think uh, for the different people in the movement, they came in their own paths. For me, as an, a business professor now for 32 years, uh, it really started, I would say, about 12 years ago uh, when I was working on a book that I was calling at the time In Search of Marketing Excellence. And I had been a marketing and a strategy professor for all that time, had taught for 20 plus years, and had really a lot of frustration with the way that marketing uh, and business were typically done. I felt, especially in marketing, that we spent an enormous amount of money in this country. Uh, and yet, if you look at the outcomes uh, on an aggregate level, they were pretty poor. We were spending roughly a trillion dollars a year at that time on uh, marketing and sales promotion and advertising and things like that. And yet, the customer loyalty and trust were falling steeply, even as spending was going up. Customer satisfaction had plateaued you know, after falling. So it seemed like spend the worst things were getting, and uh, just seemed like uh, and not only for companies but even customers. We did a study; they found 85% of people don't trust marketing. Uh, and if you look at the impact on society, we found also there were a lot of negative things that were happening in society because of all of that extreme amount of marketing that was going on. So we found it wasn't really benefiting companies, customers, or society. Mm-hmm. And and we were spending all this money on it. I mean, by the way, think about it. A trillion dollars was the GDP of India that year. Yeah. So 1.1 billion people were living on what we we're spending on ads and coupons and junk mail, basically. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it just seemed like an awful waste and not to mention the environmental consequences and the impact on people's psyches. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was negative. So we started a project uh, looking at how can we do things better and calling it in search of marketing excellence, looking for companies that spend less money on marketing and yet have outstanding loyalty and trust on their customers where most companies do the opposite of that. And when we started to identify those companies, we found that there were a number of things that were unique about them. It wasn't just that they didn't spend a lot of money on marketing and had loyal customers, but their employees were also very loyal and trusting. And, and by the way, they didn't spend a lot of money on employee recruitment you know, because their turnover was very low. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of word of mouth. And their suppliers were also very loyal to them and had mutually beneficial relationships. And their communities embraced them. So these companies were really what we would call stakeholder oriented. You know, they took care of all of their stakeholders and treated them the way you would want to treat your customers. I'd right? understand their needs, meet those needs in a mutually beneficial way. So they were stakeholder oriented. And then we also found that they had a reason for being. They were not just another retailer or bank or airline. There was a uh, passion behind what they were doing. They were trying to do things differently. There was what we would call now a higher purpose to their existence. Mm-hmm. Just like a lot of human beings have a purpose in their life, a lot of us discover that at some point. These companies also discovered a purpose other than making money. You know, you have to make money in order to survive, but that doesn't mean that should be your purpose. Just like we human beings need to make, earn a living, but doesn't mean that should be our purpose. Purpose should be separate from profit. Profit is the outcome, one of the outcomes when you pursue your purpose well. Mm-hmm. So they were not profit driven per se. So we found that they had the stakeholder orientation, the purpose. We also found the leaders were different, that they were motivated by service to people and the purpose. They weren't so much about power and ego and money. And we found that the cultures were really uh, filled with a lot of trust and uh, integrity, but also caring for people as human beings, unlike typical corporate cultures, which have a lot of fear and stress in them. So these became the pillars of what we now call conscious capitalism. But that book was called Funds of Endearment because these companies were loved by all those stakeholders. So for me as a marketing professor who had some frustration with the story of business and the way in which marketing was done, I felt like I had discovered a whole new paradigm, that there was another way of being. And if you think about it, it addresses all the big questions like why do we exist? What do we do? Who are we? And how do we operate? Mm-hmm. These companies have a different set of answers to each of those questions compared to traditional businesses. Right, so the, And we also, at the end, did the financial analysis after finding uh, these four pillars and then finding more companies that fit those criteria. At the end, we did the financial analysis to say, how would you perform uh, you know, as an investment if you put your money into these companies uh, rather than the market as a whole? Now, we thought because they're paying their people well, sometimes double of the industry average like Container Store and uh, Costco do. Uh, they're providing great benefits even to part-time employees. You know, South, uh, Starbucks is a good example. Uh, their suppliers are profitable and innovative. They're not squeezing their suppliers. They're, they're taking care of their customers and investing in that. They're investing in their communities and the environment. And uh, they were paying taxes at a higher rate. So we said maybe returns to investors are good, but nothing spectacular. What we actually found was that these companies outperform financially the original research by nine to one ratio over a 10-year period. So we said, wow, there's something very powerful going on with these companies. They're creating extraordinary amounts of value, right? And it's not coming at the expense of financial wealth creation. In fact, it's aligned with that. And all these other things that you do, they don't take away from shareholder returns. They actually add to shareholder returns. And that is a different way of thinking. 
because the traditional way of thinking about business is all about profit and profit is revenue minus cost and you know you got to maximize revenue minimize cost so you sell as much charge as much whether people need it or not and you minimize your cost so you pay your people as little as you can and you pay your suppliers as little as you can and you burden society consequences you know and you avoid taxes you know do all the things and that makes you profitable but that's that's not worth anything actually that is actually not creating value that is extracting value businesses that operate that way i i liken them more to a parasite and not to a true business so one of the things that you you mentioned was that you know they, they have this like reason for being and you know one of the old adages that you know you hear kind of growing up is when you, when you grow up and you get a job do what you love and the money will follow it almost seems as if then that these brands are kind of following it they're they're doing you know what it is that they love and then the money follows it and they don't have to invest all this extra money into marketing or anything and so they can tell a better story about what it is that they love yeah so even for us as individuals it's not enough to do something that you love mm-hmm. it has to be something that you love and also that adds value in the world right mm-hmm. i mean you might love playing video games or whatever right <laughs> uh, so what it has to be something that the adds value to other people's lives right so there's a whole set of intersections that need to happen things that you're naturally gifted at things that you love and those often are not the same things you might be gifted at something but you love something else you know so what you're gifted at what you love what the world needs right and what people are for some intersection of that that's the sweet spot for individuals and for companies you know so companies yes they need to be driven by a higher purpose and you know that includes service to humanity and making the world better but also a conscious business is still a business right so they have to have a sound value proposition they have to have a good strategy they have to have good processes they have to be efficient right they have to be effective so they need to and tackling of a traditional or typical business but on top of that then they add this like a train with a second engine the second engine of purpose and passion right and uh, and all the other things that come with that 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 gives them extraordinary boost in terms of creative energy and and also caring energy and that's really what makes the difference all organizations run on human energy and these organizations tap into deeper sources of energy than any other companies so it seems almost as if that just just mastery of the fundamentals alone um, won't make you uh, won't won't take you to that next level in comparison to you know having a true reason for being providing a real value for your customers uh, and, and just creating a different environment and culture is that is that what you're pointing at? Yeah. So just doing the basics. I mean, that's just table stakes, right? And then you sort of turbocharge it with all this other stuff. Right, so it's what we call, uh, what Richard Barrett has called, full spectrum consciousness. You need to have all the levels. He talks about seven levels of consciousness. Traditional businesses only address like the bottom three: mm-hmm. the survival, the success, the significance. You know, they're doing the things that get them esteem and recognized and, and, and rewarded, but then they don't tap into meaning and purpose and service to humanity and, and relational things. Right, so it's right. about doing all of that. So, you know, in a in a in a less Okay, there are two reasons. In a less competitive world, doing those basics will probably get you a long way. But as the world becomes more competitive, you know, you need to now do more and more, right? So that's one. Secondly, this is just aligned with human nature. This is what human beings want out of their work. This is what human beings want as customers, right? They want the businesses that they are associated with to be actually doing something good in the world, not causing harm, 
So if I buy this you know, product from you for $2, does that mean that there's some horrible pollution happening somewhere because of that, et cetera? People are more and more conscious of these things, right? So it's also now becoming necessary. Well, I'm glad that you brought up that, you know, being in a more competitive world matters. You know, if it's not competitive, if you just focus on the fundamentals of business, I mean, in theory, you're running a monopoly and you're going to make money if it's a true, no competition. But as it becomes more uh, competitive, you really have to provide, like you said, that turbocharge, that, that, that in, in French, that lanyard, that little something extra to really carry you over the top. When, when you were looking at these companies, uh, when you wrote that, that first book, Firms of Endearment, what were some of those companies then, um, I think you said nearly a decade ago, uh, that were really uh, torchbearers uh, in, in your mind? So Whole Foods Market definitely was a company that fit all these qualities to a T. They had a clear sense of higher purpose. They operate with what they call a declaration of interdependence across their stakeholders. They have a, a conscious leadership culture. Their leaders are modestly paid. They have a salary ratio of 19 to 1 maximum for highest pay to median pay. Right? So all their leaders are passionate about what the about people and service, but not just about money. Uh, and they have a great culture. You know, people who care about food, who care about health, who care about serving customers, you know, et cetera. And they're also cared for uh, by the company. So they embodied that uh, very well. I think uh, Google was another company that we had, Patagonia, uh, REI. Costco is a wonderful company that actually does all these things, treat their people extremely well. You know, compare Costco has 7% employee turnover and Walmart has 70% employee turnover. (laughs) They compete with each other. So even though Costco pays double of, say, Sam's Club, which is a Walmart company, their sales per employee are three times higher. So even though they're paying double, you know, their labor costs are actually lower compared to Sam's Club, right? And, you know, people come and they never leave and they get well paid and their health care is covered and, you know, they're great for customers. You know, you can always get a reasonable price there. They're great neighbors and citizens in their communities and they're a tremendous investment. Uh, Southwest Airlines is another poster child of this movement the most successful airline in the history of the world, perhaps their stock market symbol is love. You know, and that's the one quality that distinguishes conscious companies. These are businesses built on love and care for all stakeholders. You know, they love what they do and they love the people they associate with and that that feeling just permeates. So it's not fear and stress. These are most businesses operate on that. These businesses operate on love and care and that's a deeper source of energy that makes them actually stronger. You know, operating from love doesn't make you weaker. It makes you stronger. That's what that's true for human beings, and that's true for these businesses. I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned, you know, just a lot of different companies, especially companies that are in, in various and varied uh, industries. You know, you know, a lot of people don't see a lot of comparisons between, let's say, Southwest and REI. But I think a lot of people have had really bad flying experiences with other airlines, and they've had pretty phenomenal ones with Southwest um, because they, they make that extra step. Personally, you know, I love going into REI whenever I do. And it's just it's a. Yeah. Uh, it's a different experience versus going into, you know, a store that's, that's not REI <laughs> in, right. in all opinion. It, it's, it's a very different experience. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, Trader Joe's is another example, right? A company, everybody loves going to Trader Joe's. And I got one right but, down the street and I'm going there later. <laughs> the, people, the people who work there love their jobs. You can tell, right? And that feeling then translates. So, Transitioning then from uh, when when that book was uh, initially written, like you said, a decade ago, what changes, if any, have you seen to um, 
you know, conscious capitalism, aside from, you know, you're starting to hear a lot more companies um, say a lot of the buzzwords that you're talking about, you know, being yeah. more uh, invested in their community, you know, the, the cliche phrase in Silicon Valley is we're going to save the world with this blank app. Um, but you know, what, what, what evolutions and have you, have you seen, uh, you know, throughout the years? Well, I think we are on this journey of uh, rising consciousness and more and more people caring about things. And of course we have the millennials who are purpose driven, uh, from all accounts more so than, than most uh, other generations have been. Uh, so, you know, the conditions are becoming ripe for these kinds of approaches to work better more and more. The consciousness is also rising. Uh, I think purpose has become almost a mainstream thing now. Everybody's talking about purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? So I see a lot of companies uh, doing it. Not all of them are doing it as authentically. For some, it's a tagline or a buzzword and an agency provides it to you. But I think more and more people are starting to recognize that that really is a, a powerful source of uh, engagement of people and, and uh uh, you know, loyalty and all kinds of things result from that. So I think the, uh, the the climate is becoming generally more receptive to this. Ten years ago, calling a book Firms of Endearment was quite a risk. You know, mm-hmm. you didn't talk about love in the context of work. And today it is not at all. You don't raise any eyebrows mm-hmm. when you talk about those things, you know, because people are more accepting of that. There's another parallel trend and actually feeds into conscious capitalism that addresses uh, this, which is, it's the rise of feminine values. You know, society is changing. We have more women in college by far than men. 60% of college students almost are women. And graduating mm-hmm. at a higher rate and getting higher grades. And women are moving into leadership. And uh, the culture as a whole is being impacted by the rise of compassion, empathy, nurturing, caring. Those values are becoming not only more mainstream because there are more women, but also even more men are comfortable embodying those things. So it's all of us men and women need to access you know, the masculine and the feminine. We all have that within us. So it's not just about domination, aggression, ambition, you know, strength, courage, resilience. It's also about nurturing, caring, compassion, empathy, relationships, vulnerability. These are all human qualities, but those so-called feminine qualities were sidelined and disregarded for forever, essentially. And now that is changing, and that has been changing. You know, and that continues. I mean, it's not a straight line. You know, there. I mean, we are going through a period right now where there's a backlash against some of these things, right? And uh, and you know, I think that's just a reaction from the from the established orders, from the patriarchy, you know, for uh, which had all kinds of privileges and power for millennia. When that is starting to change, you know, there's a backlash, and people want to hold on to what they had. So I think that, but that's 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 temporary. No, that doesn't that doesn't deter the whole journey. Mm-hmm. So one of the things though, that we talked about prior to recording and that you you've hinted at kind of along the way is that with conscious capitalism, one of the things and that you focused on though too was conscious marketing and and how brands, at least is how I view marketing, is how brands tell their stories, um, you know, to prospective clients. Can you tell our audience kind of what is conscious marketing and and how do you see it um, playing out today? Yeah, so the approach to marketing also has to change, you know, and that's kind of where I started with this journey. You know, marketing can be done in a way that is all about the needs of the seller. It's kind of what we would call the old-fashioned hucksterism, you know. Come and get it. This is the best product possible. It's going to solve all your problems, you know, like 
like the hucksters at the county fairs, you know, would try to sell you snake oil. Right. Over promising, under delivering, relying on uh, image and relying on message and all of that. Uh, uh, kind of preying on your own insecurities, perhaps on your ignorance or lack of knowledge, right? Not educating the customer, trying to, you know, the, the extreme of this, I saw years ago, I was asked to advise this company or help them on this project where they were doing functional MRIs of the brains of uh, customers, you know, looking into the brains of customers as they're looking at advertisements and other things, you know, to look at what, how, what can we do to make their brain light up in the right way and then make them buy stuff. I said, you know, this is just wrong. You know, we should not be using these technologies as a way of sort of decoding and then manipulating people. We need to be doing things in marketing to serve people, right? So Peter Drucker, the well-known management thinker, once referred to the consumer movement in America as the shame of marketing. The consumer movement is there to protect people against companies, right? Against false advertising, against price gouging, against all kinds of things. And he said. The fact that customers have to organize themselves against companies, that is the shame of marketing. Because marketing's job is to look after the well-being of customers. It's not to sell them stuff. It's to actually help them live a better life, right? So we want to reorient marketing towards that end, which is to say, how can marketing make your life better? How can it improve the quality of your life? How can we understand your real needs, not just your wants and your desires and your addictions, now, marketing is not about creating and feeding addictions. It should be about uncovering and meeting real needs. And when you really meet somebody's need, in a way, you're healing them. So we're moving from marketing as hucksterism to marketing as healing, right? Because we understand you deeply now and we're meeting your needs, things that you really need. You know? uh, and so that's the orientation, focusing on customer well-being, on quality of life, on being an advocate on behalf of the customer. So, for example, if your customer is looking to buy a particular product in a category and uh, they come to you because they've been your customer in the past and they trust you, and you know that actually your product is not the best one for their need for this particular occasion, and you know of a competing product that is, a conscious marketer would actually tell that customer, listen, you shouldn't buy our product, buy this one right now. Okay, because that's going to work for you. Sell you something just because I want to get the commission, right? So what you when you do that, you're first of all serving the customer, but you're also building a lot of trust. You're losing the transaction, but you're strengthening the relationship. And ultimately, it has to be about trust, right? You become a trusted advisor to the customer. You are kind of that smart friend who tells them, who can tell them, you know, what's good and what's wrong, and what's not, and what 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 works for them and what what doesn't. So that's kind of the orientation of conscious marketing. It has a higher purpose. The higher purpose is always distinct from making money. So when anything becomes just about making money, so in marketing's case, when it just becomes about capturing market share, selling you as much as possible, charging you as, you know, all of that, when it becomes about money, then you've lost your sense of purpose. So what is marketing's real purpose? It is to improve customers' lives. Right? It is not to sell more stuff and increase market share. Now, when you do that well, right? when you do those things right and well, over time, you will increase your market share. You mm -hmm. will you know, do all of that. But if you start out with that as your goal, you know, as the Buddha said, don't be attached to a cherished outcome. 
if you're attached to a cherished outcome that says, I want to get 20% market share this year up from 15, you're going to engage in wrong actions, right? What we do is you say, just engage in the right actions, the outcomes will take care of themselves. But if you're driven by an outcome, you will engage in wrong actions. And you may achieve that outcome in the short term, but you will also create all kinds of future problems. You know, this happened, exact thing happened to Toyota. A few years ago, Toyota had never set market share goals. They were always about quality and safety and reliability. Okay, those were the mantras of, of uh, Toyota. But a few years ago, and they were growing, and they were healthy and profitable. A few years ago, their CEO set their goal that we want to become the world's largest car company in two years. Okay, so which means we need to add so much market share. And they started very aggressively pushing and selling the cars, right, and increasing production. And they lost sight of safety and they lost sight of reliability and quality. Mm-hmm. And they had that whole, you know, huge set of problems. Right? They had to recall a bunch of cars and they had sudden acceleration. All kinds of things happened because they took their eye off the ball and became all about the numbers and the market share, right? Unfortunately, you know, if a family member, Toyota family came back as CEO into the company and reconnected them to their essence. Their purpose. Same thing happened with Starbucks in the early 2000s after Howard Schultz stepped down. It became all about growth, all about adding more and more and more stores everywhere. They lost sight of their true purpose. They sacrificed on quality. They lost sight of that, you know. The locations became shabby. The experience was nothing special. And then Howard Schultz had to step back as CEO and reconnect the company back to its essence and its purpose. Right? So it's easy to lose sight of that. So that's really uh, what conscious marketing is about to me. It's putting customer needs, customer true needs at the center and serving them and not, mm-hmm. uh, not exploiting them. See, what happens with stakeholders when you're all about making money, you end up exploiting the other stakeholders. You exploit your employees, you exploit your suppliers, and you even exploit your customers and certainly your communities. When you're stakeholder-oriented, you serve all of your stakeholders. You don't exploit them. You don't say, what can they do for me? You say, what can I do for them? And when you do that, as we say, in order to win, 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 you have to give, give, give. When you serve them, you get back so much more. But if you're just there to squeeze them and exploit them, you know, sooner or later, that well runs dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like that you're mentioning it because I worked for two companies in Silicon Valley that essentially were competitors. I mean, they, they were selling the same product. One company was very much um, all about the customer and, and providing. I mean, its mantra was you know, make commerce easy. It wasn't about make money. It was trying to help the little guys do the best that they possibly can. Whereas the other company um, was really, you know, in hindsight, I would guess struggling, but at the time, I mean, it was all about making money. And I remember at one point in time with the first company um, that I had a conversation with a client, and I knew that I couldn't uh, that we, there was we, we we didn't have the we didn't have the solution that they wanted. We weren't going to be the best fit for them. And I remember in our training, you know, hey, just let them know that. I mean, you know, they can always come back to us. And I told that customer that, and they didn't leave us and go with somebody else. They ended up taking us, took us for our shortcoming, and then maybe in a few months or so, um, you know, we we fixed that gap. Yeah. But with the other company um, that I was with, um, they said, "Tell them that we can do it. Yeah. We'll hire engineers and we'll do it." Did they hire engineers to do it? They absolutely did. 
but was it the best experience? Was it the best product? Did, was it intentional in its design? Was it, you know, just saying something to lock a customer in? The answer to all of that stuff was, uh, well, the answer to locking somebody in was yes, but was it intentionally designed? The answer was no. It was a bad experience. And, yeah. and um, one of those companies is still around and the other one isn't. And the one that's still around is the one that said, hey, you know, we may not be the best one for you today. Right. So you exactly illustrated what I talked about, right? So it's customer advocacy. Become an advocate on behalf of your customer, right? Mm-hmm. And lose the sale. If you need to lose the transaction, build the relationship. Mm-hmm. Take a long-term perspective, right? So. So you, you mentioned that marketing is, is healing, and that's a great segue for us to go into a book that you're working on uh, called The Healing Organization. Um, can you talk to us about this book and, and what, you're, what you're beginning to see in your research and, and stuff? Yeah, so as I continue on this journey and this path of looking at how business can rise to higher levels of consciousness, you just it's amazing how much can be done through business and is being done by some companies. And we keep raising the bar, right? So at some level, it was only about employee engagement. Make sure that when people are at work, you know, they're not just playing solitaire. Whatever they actually work actually is interesting to them, and they're you know they're investing their their capacities in that. What can we do to improve engagement? Okay, so that's fine, that's good. But just being engaged is not the same as being passionate and, and turned on and inspired, right? So how can we go next level? Can we have make people happy at work, right? Because if they're happy, then they're going to be more productive. And you know, so we, we set the bar there. And then can they be passionate, et cetera. What we're also starting to realize, however, is that you know people are human beings at work as they are at home. They don't leave their human side out at the door when they come in. And being human uh, means you know, you're going to have all kinds of things happen in your life. And there's a lot of suffering in life even for people who are working full-time. Of course, there's a lot of suffering in the world generally. You know, we live in a world of extraordinary suffering, uh, almost unimaginable amount of suffering, if you really stop to think about it, right? So there's a huge amount of pain and suffering in the world. And what I've come to believe is that businesses are are adding to that. They're not actually alleviating our suffering. In many cases, they're adding to that because of the way in which we work. Right? that most people are disengaged, 88% of people, by the way, 87% of people are disengaged worldwide from their work. 88% of people feel they work for a company that doesn't care about them as human beings. We know that heart attacks go up on Monday morning. We know that stress levels shoot up. All kinds of negative health consequences flow from the way in which we work. Right, And that impacts not only people and their physical and emotional and mental and spiritual health, But then it impacts their children and their spouses and their families and communities. Because the way you're treated at work, that's how you end up showing up elsewhere. You can't help it. And therefore, the consequences of those toxic work environments are much deeper than just what does or does not happen at work. Right, And therefore, if we can understand what are the sources that are causing stress, what are the things that are causing people pain and suffering? Outside or inside of work, you know, they're bringing things with them. Can't function at work if you're worried sick about something. Can we help with that? Or if there are things that we're doing at work that is making, can we, you know, there's an epidemic of silent suffering going on because we don't ask those questions and we don't talk about personal things. And so people just deal with that, internalize that, and that kind of, you know, that eats you up from the inside. 
So these companies that I'm talking about now, these healing organizations, they actually are able to take people who have been burnt and stressed out and burned out uh, in their previous jobs and actually restore them to health and vitality and flourishing. Whereas many companies do the opposite. They take healthy people and over time they burn them out, stress them out. And then they have to go somewhere else to heal. We're saying business itself can be the place of healing. It doesn't have to be the place of hurting. And how do you do that? So there are lots of stories of companies that have done that. And the journey in, in this book is going to be to understand. So diagnose the problem. Yes, there's a lot of pain and suffering and we're adding to it. What's our prescription? You know, here's how companies have done it. You know, here are the different ways in which we can understand how people are suffering and here are the different ways in which we can alleviate that suffering. And by the way, when you do all that, what happens? Well, not only is it the right and human thing to do, but now these people are, you know, they're not only grateful and happy, but they're also committed and passionate and innovative and creative. And, you know, all kinds of good things flow when you do you know, good things for people, right? It's like a hospital where somebody's rescued and, you know, and saved and you know, the miraculous cure you know, those people end up donating enormous amounts of money to those hospitals, right? Because they feel grateful. I think things like that are possible with business. You know, when we heal people, we don't do it for that reason, but you'll see all kinds of goodwill flowing towards the business when it becomes a healing business. And, you know, the irony is, Kyle, if you look at even healing professions, you know, think about doctors and nurses and uh, veterinarians. I mean, these are noble professions. They're about healing people, right? Mm-hmm. Even there, the way in which we run those organizations causes a lot of suffering to the people. Doctors and nurses and veterinarians are some of the people uh, have the highest rates of depression and drug abuse you know, among all professions, right? So again, we have taken noble work and we have made it a, way, a source of suffering because of the way in which we operate. So it's not enough to work with higher purpose. Yeah, they, all of those people have higher purpose, right? Doctors, mm-hmm. nurses, but it's also the way we work. And the way we organize our hospitals and our organizations, you know, and how we manage and, and, and lead people. You know, a big source of this pain and suffering is the way in which we, uh, as I said, manage people. So, you know, the idea of management and bosses and supervisors, right? I mean, all of that often is pretty toxic. You know, nobody really likes to be managed. Nobody wants to be bossed. Nobody really wants to be supervised. You know, people want to be led. They want to be inspired. They want to be coached, right? And that's what we need to do more of. We need less management and bossing around and more leadership and and coaching, which comes from a place of caring. You know, leadership is the stewardship of the lives entrusted to us. It's not about managing. It's about getting people to do what's good for you. Leadership is about getting people to realize their potential, you know? So so that's what that journey is about. It's still at the early stages. But I'm really, really excited about that book. Well, I would definitely love to take a deep dive on it, but I would feel that if we did that, then uh, people wouldn't buy the book and they should. Uh, It's not written yet, so we're just starting. But I will say this. I have I have a friend of mine who works for this very innovative company in Silicon Valley, and uh, she, she just loves working for them. And what they've done is they've fundamentally rethought uh, the work week. And you mentioned, you know, heart attacks increase on Mondays and, and Monday mornings and, and all that. And he basically there, I think it was the CEO, and I think he's a he, uh, had the, the idea of instead of having all those really stressful Monday meetings that a lot of organizations have just always done and they've never thought to change 
uh, and which leads people to have these very stressful Sunday nights uh, where they have to, you know, put all this work into, you know, some, you know, pitch deck or something like that. He switched it so that everything happens on Tuesday. So that way these people can enjoy the time with their family uh, over the weekend and whatever uh, administrative work or loose ends that they need to tie up, they can tie up on that Monday and then they can go easier into the work week. And so they really focus having uh, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays being like the real working days of the week and then having Fridays and Mondays being administrative days. I like that. It's a simple, but uh, yeah, it's a significant change. It just changes yeah, they, the whole dynamic. Of the whole, yeah. yeah. They also have a very strict policy on email. Like everybody's company email gets turned off, I think at 7 p.m. So everybody has mm-hmm. to go home. Like you don't even receive an email on your phone. Uh, there's only mm-hmm. one person that's designated per night that receives email. So if something gets escalated to a point where it's a real emergency, then it gets handled. Um, but other than that, um, not everybody's sitting by their phone. They can just go and, you know, be people. <laughs> yeah, well, I love society. Great. Yeah, and I, yeah. No, I'll, I'll have to talk to my friend and see if I can talk to talk about them, and then maybe I'll, I'll send you that information. But yeah, I think I'm that's. Looking, uh, I'm looking at this point for examples of healing organizations. I mean, we've got a bunch that we're interviewing and telling stories, but we're we're looking for more stories. So if you know of healing organizations, please contact me or your listeners as well. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be sure to let them uh, know how to get in contact with you. But I think this is a, a good place for us to uh, to wrap up. Uh, so look, audience, if you want to have Raj Desidia, uh come and speak uh, for your event, um, talk to you about you know conscious capitalism to conscious marketing, and even start to give you the preliminary stuff uh, about you know what it is to be a healing organization, you can do so by contacting GDA speakers. The number is 214-420-1999. Uh, the website's gdaspeakers.com. Um, for the transcript of today's podcast and to be able to uh, purchase all of Raj's books, you can do so by going to gdapodcast.com, uh, where I'll have everything available uh, there. Uh, with that being said, Raj, thank you so much. And I really appreciate uh, our conversation that we had today. Sure thing, Kyle. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.